So many of you already know this about me, but I spent many of my early adult years as a musician playing in orchestras as a French horn player. And what you may not know is that most musicians who want to make a living as performers don't successfully do that. They don't successfully make a living. What they tend to do is play sometimes for a little bit of money. And then what they need to do is other stuff to actually make a living. And most musicians turn to teaching as a way to supplement the income until they can make it in the world. And so I did this too. I did a lot of teaching. Uh, at any given time, I had anywhere from 20 to 60 private students, mostly like middle school and high school kids, who were taking private lessons with me to learn how to play the French horn. And some of those students were great. Some of those students showed up eager, excited, wanting to learn, uh, would listen to my instruction, would take it to heart, maybe write notes, go home and actually practice, come back to their next lesson prepared and ready to be better at the instrument. But for every one of those students, I had like 30 students <laughs> who would show up and be like, mm -hmm. my mom makes me come to this. I don't really want to do this. I'm too cool for this. And I say, well, did you practice? Oh, yeah, I practice. Yeah? How often? Every day. Every day? For how long? At least 30 minutes. Which is exactly what I tell them every time I meet with them. You should be practicing every day for at least 30 minutes. And so they come back having not practiced, and then when I ask them if they practiced, they tell me what they're supposed to tell me. I practiced every day, 30 minutes. And then I would have them play, and it would immediately become clear that they're lying. They did not practice. They don't want to practice. They will not be practicing. And eventually, I would have this conversation with the kid 47,000 times, and I would eventually call their parents and be like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but it's real possible you might be wasting your money. You send your kid with this check every week, but he doesn't practice. He doesn't really want to do this. You might want to reconsider whether this is a thing. Right? What's interesting, though, is that both of those groups of kids, the real small group of kids who actually did the work and practiced, and the big group of kids who didn't, they wanted the same thing. They both desired to be good. That's why they played. Right? They were in the band or they're in the orchestra, and they're hoping to be good. They want to sound like what they hear when they go to the symphony, or they wanted to sound like what they hear when they go to the movies and watch a, a cool sci-fi movie that has a really cool French horn solo on the soundtrack. They wanted to sound like that. They all wanted that. But the smaller group understood that between the desiring the thing and attaining the thing, there's something that happens in between. And the other group either didn't realize that that was the case, or they did realize it, but they didn't want to do it. What it takes to get from here to here, no thanks. I didn't want to do it, right? And I think that has some, some application for us today. I think that's what we're seeing in the text as Jesus is addressing his disciples in our passage. He's going to turn his attention to the cost of following him because his disciples don't understand. They don't understand that there is something between seeing this good end and actually attaining it. And so he's turning his attention to that. So let's pray and then we will get into the text together. Father, we love you. We're so thankful 
that you love us, that you have set your sights upon us, called us out from the muck and the mire and made us your own, drawn us to be with you. You've called us to yourself. And that by your spirit, you have given us a new heart that no longer loves sin, but instead hates it and loves you, that sees and understands by your spirit the truth of what your word proclaims about your son that you have sent to make it possible for us to be renewed, for us to be changed, for us to be born again, for us to be adopted into your family. You have done all of this. And so we just praise your name for that because you're good. And as we study your word this morning, we pray that you'll help us to see that that gift of faith that you give to your people and the repentance that comes with it is the very thing that your son is pointing to. It's the very thing he wants his disciples to see in this passage and wants us to see as we consider what it looks like to follow him. And so we pray that you'll be with us as we study your word, that your name would be made great, that our hearts would be encouraged and reminded of the truth, that we have a good God who loves us, who's for us and not against us, that we can trust you because you are faithful to your promises, that what you have proclaimed will be the end for those of us that are in Christ, those who truly follow him, that that promise will come to fruition, that we can bank on it, we can trust in it, your promises are good. And so we pray that that would be the reality for us today, that our hearts would be excited and encouraged and joyful about the knowledge that what you have promised will indeed come. So be near to us while we study, while we read, while we consider together. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Okay. I'm going to read the text one more time. 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall it a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of, the, of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we're looking at these five verses, 24 to 28, in this 16th chapter of Matthew. But we're going to go through these verses backwards today. I think it will be helpful for us to do so. So we're going to begin with verse 28, which is, I think, the most potentially controversial or maybe even debated verse in our passage. It's not a heated debate. This is not a big theological difficulty, but it does cause a lot of us to scratch our heads and wonder what in the world is he talking about? Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So there is a tendency for us to presume that what he means when he says the Son of Man coming into his kingdom must obviously be a reference to the second coming. Jesus is coming again. He will come into his kingdom. He will come in judgment and in power. And so therefore, if that's correct, then what Jesus must be telling his disciples is, some of you won't die until I return. But that can't be correct, because Jesus has not yet returned. And all of the men who were standing with him there on that day have most certainly died. So either Jesus got it wrong, or 
we have misunderstood what we're reading. And whenever you have to put what you think up against what God says, and they don't match up, you should always lean on the side of, I haven't understood correctly, which is what we should do. Because what we see clearly in this verse is that the Son of Man comes to reign. That is certainly true. The Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, comes to reign and rule over the earth. That is indeed something that he does and will do. And the Son of Man coming into his kingdom certainly culminates with the second coming. When he returns in judgment, when he sits in in kingship, in lordship, in his throne room over all of the nations, that will indeed be the culmination of him coming into his kingdom. That is when it is seen in its fullest, when it is completed. But it doesn't start there. I think that's what we often miss. Think about Isaiah chapter 9, these verses that we often read at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So it seems like even at his birth, there's a sense in which there's an understanding that he's coming into his kingdom, that he is a king. What about Matthew chapter 2, which reads, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from, to Jerusalem, saying, Where's this baby that was born that's not a king yet, but he will be later? No, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not long after Jesus' birth, Herod goes to slaughter all of the baby boys, all of the young children that are men, because he fears that Jesus is a genuine threat to his kingdom. He sees Jesus as an actual king who's coming. When Jesus comes out of the wilderness after being tempted by Satan, In that fourth chapter of Matthew, Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist said the same thing when he was preparing the way for Jesus a chapter earlier. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus tells his disciples the same thing when he sends them out to proclaim the gospel. He says, Proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That idea at hand means here, means now, means it's happening. Think of all the parables that Jesus tells his disciples. We see a lot of them in chapter 13. Jesus telling them that the kingdom of heaven is here. Here's what it's like. It's here. Even some of you do not see it. You do not perceive it. The kingdom is here. Jesus and the rest of the scriptures have been proclaiming that when Jesus comes, that the kingdom of heaven being here. This king coming into his kingdom is a present reality. It was something that was happening now. And so then what does Jesus then mean here in verse 28? In one sense, they'd already seen the Son of Man coming into his kingdom just by virtue of the fact that they were with him. By being with Jesus, they have seen the Son of Man coming into his kingdom in one sense. In another sense, they just saw the Son of Man coming into his kingdom even more fully, even more truly as as Peter makes this beautiful confession. You are the Christ 
the son of the living God. This very pinnacle, this high point of Matthew's gospel. So he'd already been clearly seen for who he is. This idea that he is this king who's coming into his kingdom, that's already happened to some degree through his miracles, through his preaching and so on. But these men who were standing with him were literally on the verge of seeing even more. The very next passage, what we'll look at next week, this the story of the transfiguration where three of Jesus' disciples are going to go with him and they're going to bear witness to some, an, an extraordinary display of Christ's divinity and the glory of God, which will then quickly be followed by his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. Then his spirit will be poured out at Pentecost. His church will go out and grow into all the world. The gospel will go forth. Jesus' point here is that there's clear evidence of his reign. And it's not reserved for this far distant future where he's going to return and stand in judgment. The evidence of his reign, the evidence of him coming into his kingdom is here and it's now. And it's about to be even more clear to you as these other events come, disciples. And we, church, we see the signs of Jesus' reign as well, as we read the scriptures, as we live our lives together as the household of God, as we walk by the Spirit in love for one another, we see clearly that Jesus reigns over us. But just like the disciples who were standing there with him in our passage, there's more of his reign that's coming. And that's what Jesus was referring to in verse 27, if we go back one verse. Verse 27 For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so Jesus takes this title, Son of Man. This is one of the titles that Jesus most often takes for himself. And he's talking about the eschaton, the end times. He's talking about what's going to happen at the end when he returns, when he comes back to sit in judgment, when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. He's speaking of this. He says when the Son of Man is going to come with his angels, he's speaking of the unity that he has with his Father. God's angels are my angels. I and the Father are one. I will be in the glory of my Father. And then, then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is speaking about this final judgment where he will sit in judgment over the living and the dead, and we will each receive what we deserve according to what we have done. The question about what we deserve is answered clearly in the scriptures. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Jesus is referencing what's coming when I return, this thing that you thought I was here to do now, it's still going to happen. It is coming. He's reassuring them because he is breaking what they think, what Peter was thinking, and what likely some of the other's disciples were thinking. He's breaking that and replacing it with the truth. And he's saying, no, there's something different that's happening first. I've come to do some saving, and then I will come. Then the Son of Man will come, and he will sit in judgment this idea that you and I, if we are still alive upon Christ's return, we will stand in judgment before the throne, before Christ, we will be judged. If we are, if we are not alive, if we have already died, then we will be resurrected. 
to that judgment. And those that had been found righteous because of Christ, not because of them, but because of the deeds of Christ that now count for them, will be with him for eternity in glory. And those who have not put their hope in Christ, whose deeds have not been paid for by Christ's blood, will be separated from God forever. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's giving them reassurance that the thing you thought I came to do, to come and crush my enemies, to lift you up, my people that I rescued, I'm still going to do that. That's coming. The Son of Man will come, but that's not what's happening now. So in light of Jesus being this king who reigns and this judge who is coming, we, you and I, church, should live like Jesus is going to tell us here shortly. But first, he's going to address the problems with living the way that we think is best, with living the way that we want. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so Jesus is speaking about a man's soul, a person's soul, the very essence of who they are, their very life. He's speaking about it in terms of value. He speaks in terms of profit. What could you gain that would be worth your very life? your very soul? What would you gain? What would you profit if you were actually able to obtain the whole world? What would that be like? What would that be like if we actually were able to obtain the whole world? If you actually possessed every item on the planet, if you were sovereign over every land, every nation, you held the deed to every parcel of land, if you had every cent that was available to be had, if you had all of the power over all of the things of the world, if you somehow obtained all of that, what would your profit be if what you have lost is your very self, is your very soul? If eternally you're separated from God even though you crushed it here in this life, what would you profit? And then conversely, he's saying, and then if you found that you had lost your soul and you said, no, 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 I've done it wrong. I want to buy it back. What would it cost you? What would you have to be able to exchange? Jesus is saying, if you had it all, none of it goes with you beyond the grave. If you had the entire world, you would have nothing. Because once death comes and once judgment comes, you'll be found wanting. You won't have enough to buy your soul. You won't have the payment that's required. Jesus is speaking in this language of value and of profit to get our minds thinking about the value of the very heart of a person, the very soul of a person, the very essence of a person. And Jesus understands this perfectly well personally. He knows what it's like to have the entire world offered to him in exchange for a relationship with God. Give this up and I will give you the entire world, Satan says when he's tempting him in the desert. He takes him to this high place and he says, look at all the nations of the earth. Look at all this splendor. Look at all of this majesty. Look at all this stuff. I'll give it to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? What does he say? 
you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus knows what the value of the whole world is compared to either keeping or breaking an eternal relationship with a holy God. And so what are the questions? What are the answers to those questions? What will it profit a man if he gets the whole world and loses his soul? Nothing. There is no profit. And what can a man repay? What payment does a man have to give for his soul? Nothing. Because the payment that's required can only be made by Christ. The payment that's required for your soul is something that only Jesus can give. It's only through him that payment for your life can be made. And it's only by forsaking all of the worldly treasures that our hearts seek after that we will be able to truly follow him and to be a people who have not wasted our lives, which is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't waste your life. Don't spend your time and your money and your energy and your thoughts chasing after these things that cannot satisfy, that are not a good enough price for your very soul. Don't give up your life for piddly little worthless things. And in that category of piddly little worthless things, Jesus puts the whole world. There is nothing that is worth forsaking or leaving or not having the joy that is found in knowing and following Christ. Jesus tells them one verse earlier, what is worth giving up your life for? Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so here in verse 25, now we're talking about life, whereas in verse 26, we're talking about soul. But the Greek, those words are the same. The word that's being translated as soul and the word that's being translated as life are the same thing. Jesus is talking about the same idea, the very essence of you, the very heart of you, the entirety of you. Whoever would lose that will actually save his life, and whoever tries to keep it will lose it. It's a real paradoxical idea, right? When he says whoever, he's not just speaking to his disciples that are in front of him. Jesus knows he's speaking to an eternal audience. He's speaking to you and I, anyone who would follow him. Whoever would save his life, whoever would try to grab hold of these things of the world, whoever would try to hang on to this life that I have envisioned, what I think life ought to be like, the comfort that I want, the security that I want, the money that I want, the possessions that I want, whoever wants to put those things as his pursuit, the aim of his heart, the trajectory of his life, whoever sets his life upon those things thinking that he's somehow saving his life is literally doing the opposite is literally forsaking the very thing that they can take with them beyond the grave. Because I can't take all this stuff with me. What I can take is my hope in Christ. The truth of what Christ has done for me is the one thing that remains with me. And Jesus is wanting us to see that. And so that the inverse is true. Whoever's willing to say, I will not set my will and my affections and my look for my joy, look for my hope, look for my satisfaction, look for my comfort in the things of this world, but instead will look for them in him, will actually do the very thing that they hoped to do by clinging to the world, by clinging to things, by clinging to stuff, by clinging to a joy that will never be found in those things and will only be found in him. 
Because that's what he means when he says forever would save his life. When he says whoever would, he's talking about a will, a setting of the affections of saying, this is the aim and goal of my life. What have I set myself upon? What am I pursuing? What am I chasing? What are my desires? Are they to be comfortable, to have stuff, to have the big house, all the cars, to have the money, to have the prestige, to have the honor, to be respected, to be thought of well? If those are my goals, if that's what I want most, then I will have lost the very thing that, I, that my heart truly desires. But if instead I chase that and forsake these other things, I could still have money. I could still have a home. But if that is not the aim of my life, but the aim of my life is him, the aim of my life is to get beyond this temporal situation and recognize that what is eternal is what I'm dealing with. These are the things Jesus is talking about. What is eternal? What is coming? When that day comes and he sits in judgment, where will I stand? Will I stand with him and be counted righteous because of Christ? Or will I be found wanting and be separated from him forever and have actually lost my life because I've set my affections upon the things of this world? This is paradox that he's giving. Whoever loses his life for my sake. Meaning, I am, I am renouncing my ties and my allegiances to the things of this world, not so that I'll look good to other Christians, not so that people will say, oh, what a devout man. But I do it for his sake. I don't set my affections on the thing of the world because of Christ, but because of what I might look like. But for his sake, Whoever loses his life for my sake, we ought to be putting our, our hope in him, putting Christ ahead of our own preferences, ahead of our own desires. We're setting our will upon loving and following him. And he doesn't really explain this very thoroughly in this text because he's already explained it. He's already talked in a great detail about what it looks like back in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus has already explained what this practically looks like. That to pursue him, to put our hope in him, to have a desire to forsake my life so that I might actually gain it includes the possibility that I might be severed from the very relationships I hold most dear here in this world. That Christ comes before my relationship to my mom. It comes before my relationship to my wife. It comes before my relationship to my kids. It comes before my relationship to you. That my love for Christ supersedes all of those things for his sake. Jesus is making a logical chain of conclusions that we're working our way backwards through. But Jesus sacrificed himself for us, and we are, in a sense, being asked 
to sacrifice our lives for him. Not in the same way. He is a substitute for us. His death can count for us and does something for us. For us to set aside our lives in pursuit of him, to put our hope in him, to recognize that eternal things are what our our heart truly is after. Doesn't accomplish anything for Jesus. We are not substituting ourselves for him, but we are following him. And where does he go? To the cross. Some of us have already experienced the pain, the difficulty of losing our life so that we might find it. Some of us have lost jobs, lost friendships, lost family members, lost financial opportunities for the sake of Christ. And that's hard and it's painful. Some of us know clearly what this is like, what it feels like. But what Jesus is talking about is the difference between a selfish, limited, short-lived self-love and the life-giving, joy-filled, infinite love of God, the love of Christ. What would that be like? What would that be like if we lived that way? What would it be like if we made our decisions about where we go, what we do, how we spend our money, what relationships we pursue, what we do with our children, what we do with our families, what we do with our friends, how we manage those relationships, how we care for people. What if all of those things are motivated by love for God? This is what Jesus is asking us to do. Think of that rich young ruler. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus says, obey. Obey the commandments. Do what God tells you. And he says, yeah, I'm doing that. I've done that. What am I missing? And Jesus says, sell all you have and follow me. Jesus says, I'll tell you what you're lacking. You're trying to find your life in the world. You're trying to find your life in things. You want a checklist so that you can be cool with me, but you don't want to follow me. He's saying, forsake that. Forsake where your heart is and put your heart in the right place. Follow me. And what happens? He walks away. Later in that same chapter, chapter 19, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, side note, when I was a kid, for a little while, I genuinely thought what it meant was that it's easier to poke a camel in the eye with a needle than it is to enter the kingdom of God, which ironically, it still works. Because I was like, I feel like that'd be real hard. It'd be real hard coming out of a camel with a needle and trying to sneak up on him. Nope, that's real hard. So for, as, for being a kid, completely misunderstanding what he's saying, I still got the right message. That's pretty sweet. Or what about Judas? Judas Iscariot, this man that literally walked with Jesus, slept in the same place as he slept, sat under all of his teachings, had his love washed over him personally. And as soon as somebody shows up with a handful of silver, he says, yeah, I'll tell you where he's at. Where's Judas put his hope? Where's that rich young ruler put his hope? In the things of the world. They are trying to save their own life. And in doing so, they're losing it. I hope, church, that we would not look like them. That we would not be like that rich young ruler. That we would not be like Judas. 
so easy to denounce and, and dismiss our Savior. I pray our lives would look more like Paul, who literally counted it joy to be arrested, to be beaten, to be shipwrecked, and otherwise persecuted, all while singing the excellencies of Christ and always telling others of the great joy of knowing him. We read that story, we read those stories about him behaving that way, and we say, what? How? Because he understands what Jesus is saying. If you try to save your own life, you will lose it. But if you are willing, if you forsake the things of this world and you set your hope upon him, lose your life, and then you will find it. Jesus is telling us to live our lives for him completely. Completely. That's difficult for us to get our heads around. We prefer to live our lives the way we want to live our lives, and we'll put Jesus on the side, and we'll talk about him a lot, and we'll come to church, and we'll read our Bibles, and we'll make it look good, but we don't want to live our lives for him. We don't want to lose our lives for his sake because it's hard and it's scary. And that brings us to the first verse of our passage, verse 24. And this is why I wanted to work backwards because I think this is the very crux of the passage. He says the most important thing first. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's ice. That's ice in there. I'm seeing now that was a bad idea. So this verse begins with the word then. Then something happened. So there's something chronological happening. Then this happened. Why? Because something happened just before this. And what happened just before this is Jesus' interactions with Peter. This beautiful moment where Peter confesses him as the Christ and then immediately repudiates the very thing that Jesus came to do. And so Jesus is saying, I need to tell them again. I need to tell them again. And so he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, guys, Peter is wrong. I am going to die. That's part of the deal. That's why I'm here. You think I've come to do the end stuff and I am going to do that, but I'm doing something else first. I'm going to die because that's what's needed. That's what's required so that when the judgment comes, you can be found righteous. You can be found not in want. You can be found an adopted, welcome son or daughter of the king. So I'm going to die, disciples, and you will too. And he wants them to see that clearly because they've misunderstood what the Messiah was going to do. But they weren't wrong. What they were hoping for was the end. Jesus is here. He's going to crush his enemies like grapes into wine, and we're going to rule and reign with him forever, and it's going to be awesome. And they're right. But first, there's some saving to do. And so Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And this is what we've, we've been talking about this entire time. To deny oneself is literally to recognize that this life is nothing compared to the life that's going to come, the life that's available in Christ, and I need to deny me. Because what I think, what I want, the way I want to live, there is something wrong with that. 
because I'm broken. I'm a sinner in need of a savior, and here he is. What I desire for my life isn't what's best. And so when I look at the idea of denying myself, taking up a cross and being prepared for crucifixion and following Jesus, that feels real wrong to me because I'm wrong. Because the way I think is wrong. Because what I want is wrong. Jesus is saying you must be prepared to deny yourself. And he says take up his cross. Now for us, Jesus has not yet told his disciples how he's going to die. But we know. We're on the other side of the cross. We get to look back and say, oh yeah, Jesus is talking about what he did. He died on the cross and he's telling them you need to be prepared to suffer too. We get it. But he had not yet told his disciples how he's going to die. And so when he says to them, take up your cross, he already said it once, now he's saying it again, his disciples would have been shocked by that. What? What's he talking about? For real? Take up your cross. They know what that means. They know what that means. We read this and we think nothing of it because we tend to associate good things with the cross. The cross is the pinnacle of the gospel, right? It's good news of the kingdom that's reestablished in Christ. And we hear Jesus say, take up your cross, it has a different meaning for us than it did for his disciples at the time. They would have known what that meant. They would not have immediately thought, oh, this is about Jesus is going to pay for the sins of the world on a cross. But rather, they would have understood this was a reference to the most horrific way to die that any of them could think of. Jesus says, take up your cross. They know that when someone is crucified, very often they are forced to carry part of the apparatus of their crucifixion with them to the crucifixion. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, they know what he means. He's saying, you need to be ready to be crucified. And they're like, <laughs> hang on. What are you saying? This would have been a really, really big deal for me. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you need to be prepared to set aside your own desires and preferences and literally be ready to die. And not only die, but die in the most excruciating way possible. It seems like a lot. And it isn't even the first time that he's said this to them. He's already said it back in chapter 10. We read it just a minute ago. And this idea of taking up your cross, being ready to genuinely give up your life, not just metaphorically, being ready to genuinely give up your life is the thing that he's calling us to. He's calling his disciples to. And it's not a once and done thing. It's not a muster up the courage to say, okay, I'm ready to follow Jesus and I realize it might be tough and I can do it. And now you go on with your life. In the gospel of Luke, Luke adds another word that Jesus says here. He says, you need to be ready to take up your cross daily and follow me. This is a daily exercise of being prepared to actually lose this life so that I might find it. Jesus wants his followers, his disciples, to understand what following him means. Why? Because there is a long history of his disciples misunderstanding that. And not just them, us too. There's a long history of Christians misunderstanding what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we've got Peter here giving this greatest confession of all time, the very pinnacle, the high point, the center of Matthew's gospel, where he boldly proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he immediately says, but you won't die. And Jesus is like, oh, you were almost there. 
the Jewish people then understand clearly that the Messiah is coming. He's going to destroy his enemies and rule over the earth. They understand that really well. They also understand that they're going to share in his conquering. They're going to share in his ruling and his reigning over the earth. They understand that he's going to do great things, and they get to share in those great things with him. But like my music students, they don't quite understand what it takes. They have their eyes set on the beauty and the glory of the end, and they don't recognize what it takes to get there. Now, what's amazing about my analogy is that it breaks down really, really fast. Because if the student works really hard, does everything I tell him, practices diligently, does all of the stuff, works really hard, plays the scales, does all the boring stuff, there is a chance that he will actually become good. That he will actually get to sound like what he hears on the soundtracks and what he hears of the symphony. There is a chance. There's also a chance that he won't. In fact, there's a really, 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 really good chance that he won't, in spite of all of his hard work. But in the case of following Christ, the success is guaranteed. There is no earning. There is no you need to work hard enough to get there. We've already got the assurance. We already know how this ends. We don't have to wonder, am I going to be one of the ones that make it? His work has already won the day. Christ's life and death and resurrection have already purchased for me the ability to know how it ends, which is the very reason why I can endure, the very reason why I can take up my cross and follow him with confidence, knowing that the life I might spend trying to save my own life might be more fun, might have more money, might have more accolades, But it is nothing. It is literally infinitely nothing compared to the joy that's coming and the knowledge of that joy, the knowledge that that is guaranteed for the Christian is the thing that gives us the ability, the confidence, and the joy to truly take up our cross and to follow him. We don't need to earn anything. We just got to come to terms with what he's saying to us. If we want to truly know him, if we want to truly follow him, we've got to go where he goes. That's what he means. Follow me. Go where I go. And where does he go? To the cross. The joy that we seek, the peace that we seek, the comfort that we seek, the freedom that we seek, the acceptance that we seek, these things are woven into us. These desires for those are woven into the very fabric of our being. And they're all found at the end, with him. Jesus isn't inviting his people into suffering. He's not saying, take up your cross and follow me so I can find out which ones of you are really, really hard. This isn't meant to weed out the weak Christians so that we're only left with the Navy SEAL versions of us. This is the reality of what it means to follow our Savior. He's inviting us into the very joy and the very rest that's guaranteed for those who actually follow him. Jesus was experiencing this misunderstanding with his disciples. Peter, of course, in particular, in chapter 16 here, what they believed about him was correct and was true. He is coming to crush his enemies. He is coming to rule over the nations. He is coming to conquer the world and to have his people reign with him for eternity. That's true now, and it was true then. But there was work that needed to be done first. 
Jesus came first to do the work of saving, and then he will come again to do the rest. Similarly, for us, for the Christian, we anticipate that day of return, just like Peter and the disciples did, where we know the outcome is genuinely incredible for us. The outcome is amazing because we are the adopted sons and daughters of the king. We're the brothers and sisters of Christ. We get everything he gets. We're entitled to all the inheritance that he gets. Because we follow him, we share in his glory, we will share in his joy, we will share in his rule and his reign, we will share in the peace that he brings. But we must also remember that we follow him now as well. We get all that he gets now as well, which means we must share to some degree in his sufferings. And he makes that abundantly clear in John chapter 15 where he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So church, let's pray that God gives us a heart that earnestly desires to follow Christ. This man who was persecuted, who was reviled, who was murdered in this horrendous way, but who was raised to new life. We will share in those sufferings and we will share in that resurrection and we will share in that joy. What he offers, this invitation to this life that you cannot lose, this guarantee of an inheritance that's yours if you belong to him, if you follow him, is infinitely worth Denying yourself and taking up your cross. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word tells us what is true. And sometimes the truth is joyful and wonderful and exciting. And sometimes the truth is difficult. But it's always good. The difficulty is us. The difficulty isn't you. And so we pray that you'll help us to see that rightly. We pray that you will strengthen our faith. You will increase our joy. That you will give us hearts that truly understand and desire to follow you. To take up our cross. To deny ourselves. That's what you've asked us to do. We want to do it and we find it difficult. And so we pray that you would help us to walk by your spirit to recognize that it is you that's done all the work. You have already accomplished for us everything that is needed. We're not being asked to go and earn. We're not being asked to measure up. We're not being asked to do so that you might have favor on us. You already have favor on us. You've already given us your favor. You've already given us your son. You've already done everything that must be done. So Lord, I pray that we would not be discouraged or frustrated or sad, but instead we would remember that what you've invited us into is your glory, your joy, and that you are coming, that you are going to stand in judgment, and that those who've been given this beautiful gift of faith and the repentance that comes with it will be with you for eternity. 
And then we will know even better than we can know now the beautiful reality of losing this temporal life that we now experience in order that our lives might be saved by you because of what you've done on the cross. We thank you that you are good to us. We're grateful for your son. We're thankful that your spirit has come to illuminate the truth of your word to our hearts that we might know and trust in him, that our hope will be found in him and that we would indeed joyfully follow him. We love you. We thank you for him. We thank you for all that you've done. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.